From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The sexual abuse one Colorado man suffered when he was a Boy Scout still haunts him. It's something you don't want to think about, but it will pop into your head out of nowhere. It makes me cautious of doing a lot of things. I don't trust people as much. As a parent, it makes me keep a very close eye on my kids. Why former scouts have new hope for justice. Then, a woman who was denied fertility treatment because of her weight, and a doctor who thinks that's wrong. It's an injustice to use a single factor as to whether you can become a parent. That is criminal in my mind. What role does a mother's weight play in delivering a healthy baby? And Jews, Muslims, and Christians help keep each other's holy days safe. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Boy Scouts take an oath to help other people at all times. But some scout masters did harm, sexually abusing the boys in their care. Well, now survivors have new hope for justice. You see, New Jersey passed a law this year extending the statute of limitations for sexual abuse. This is in general, not just the Boy Scouts. And that means our guest, a man named Tim, who lives in Denver, can sue. Tim's abuse occurred while he was a scout in New Jersey. But here's the thing. Boy Scouts of America was headquartered in New Jersey in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so lawyers will argue that means scouts abused in any state can sue under the New Jersey law. Tim joins us along with his lawyer, Vincent Napo. Thanks to you both for being here. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Great to be here. Tim, how old were you when you joined the Boy Scouts? I believe I was somewhere around 11 or 12. So that would put it somewhere around 1982, 83-ish. What made you want to be a Boy Scout, Tim? Uh, I had a friend that lived across the street named Scott, and he said it was a really fun thing to do and brought me to my first scout meeting. And my parents agreed to it, and there I went. What was that first scout meeting like? It was new. It was something different. And being in a small town, all your friends were there. It was the, the, like the place to be. I understand that your abuse spanned many years. When did it start? I believe it was somewhere when I was around um, 13 or 14. It remains difficult to talk about. Yes. What do you remember? Um, sorry. I remember, I mean, it, for some reason, I would end up sleeping within a, the tent uh, with the scoutmaster this guy named John Seebeck. I don't know why I was put in that position, but it, it happened. My parents later and that during that time were going through a divorce, so I was more involved in scouts because it was more of an outlet to go to. During that time, I mean, at night, I would wake up and I would feel something, a hand down my pants. And um, <sighs> I would roll over and pretend to be asleep. And... I don't think acknowledgement was ever there between the two of us, but it continued to happen over years where he would bring me and other kids on more private camping trips down the Jersey Shore or, or other places where it continued to happen. I'll just kind of jump to where I think it ended is when I was slightly older, maybe 14, we would be in on, on trips in New York State to 
doing canoe trips, overnight canoe trips for about a week. And was this under the auspices of the Boy Scouts or did it feel like a kind of side? No, thing? these these were Boy Scout trips and where it happened again and on one of those trips. And I refused to ever get in a tent again with the person. And I think that's when he realized I knew or he knew I knew. Do you remember the first person you told that this had happened to you? And, and how old were you? Um, it was kept hidden uh, until I was in college. Uh, actually, I moved from New Jersey in 1992 to Colorado. Somehow it came out, I don't know why, talking to my father. What was his reaction? He first, uh, from what I remember, consulted uh, the church. <laughs> which is kind of funny. <laughs> they recommended we go to the police station and report it. And you did that? And I did that, correct. The scoutmaster in question has since passed away, but had apparently admitted to this while he was alive. Was he ever prosecuted? He was not. Even when I went to the police and they actually went and questioned him, I was told that they brought him in for questioning. He admitted it. He also said I was one of the harder ones to explain it about. Um, but they said there was nothing they could do. Uh, and I assume, Vincent, that's because the statute of limitations had passed at that point? That's right. Okay. This new law in New Jersey obviously changes the dynamic. That's absolutely correct. Tim, when you, when you said it was especially hard for the scoutmaster to talk about you, what did you mean? I believe it's because he was very good friends with my family. Oh, my my dad was good friends with him. He helped us move from Allendale to another town after my parents' divorce went through. The level of violation here is incredible. And I think that's because that's what these people do. They, they, they prey on people. They prey on people's families. How would you say this has affected you in your adult life and, and frankly, as a parent? In my adult life, I, I, I guess it's something... You don't want to think about, but it will pop into your head out of nowhere. It makes me cautious on doing a lot of things. I don't trust people uh, as much. As a parent, uh, it makes me keep a very close eye on my kids. I know everybody they talk to, everything they do. Uh, they're never left alone. To tell you the truth, I don't think they have maybe once had a babysitter. Uh, that has not been a family member. It like, makes you hypervigilant. Yes. How is your relationship, or I, I'm not sure, is your father alive still today? No, my father actually, he passed away in uh, 2003 of cancer. What kind of conversations did you have with him? I mean, because, again, the abuser was so close to your family. What did your father make of what had happened to you? I remember him saying he... Uh, he knew it. He always thought something happened, um, but never said anything. He was overly angry. He didn't know if he should go out there and do something to this person. Um, he never did. I don't think ever, any conversations were ever made between him and the person. This Countmaster was in the Boy Scouts of America through 2016, correct? Yes, and I don't understand how when I reported this in 1996 that he was still allowed to go th be involved. I, I, I'm still confused by that fact. 
Vincent, in fact, you're representing another client abused by the same person, correct? That's correct. Uh, in fact, he was abused a little over 20 years prior to Tim's abuse. We contacted Boy Scouts of America for comment. Here's the statement they gave us. We sincerely apologize to anyone who is harmed during their time in scouting. The safety and protection of children is our most important priority. The Boy Scouts of America has taken significant steps over many years to ensure that we respond aggressively to reports of abuse. Today, there are multi-layered safeguarding policies, including mandatory training for volunteers, background checks, mandatory reporting to law enforcement, and a 24-7 helpline. May I have you, Vincent, respond to that statement in the context of how recently an abuser was allowed to remain as a scoutmaster? You know, I, I think the scouts will have to explain how something like that happens, but I can tell you none of what I'm hearing in that statement acknowledges or addresses the utter failure to do anything to stop child predators from using their program to abuse children for decades and decades and decades. This is reflected in the fact that you have uh, numerous clients in Colorado who now may be able to sue under the New Jersey law. That's correct. So I would say in the last six months alone, we've spoken to close to 500 men with stories like Tim's. Uh, is that all over the country or just in Colorado? Th that is around the country. Okay. Uh, in Colorado, I would say we've probably spoken to somewhere between 15 and 20 individuals who were abused. Keep in mind, we're one law firm. I think the scouts have acknowledged publicly that they've counted approximately 12,500 abuse survivors. I'm sure that number is very low. They've also acknowledged, uh, the scouts that is, nearly 8,000 child molesters that have been involved in their program over the years. Is it your concern that this type of abuse continues then in the Boy Scouts of America or that you simply want to bring justice to the cases in the past? That's a great question. So the men and women that we represent, the abuse survivors, all of them want accountability. They want to speak out so that people know about this danger, know about this problem. Uh, and they want to make sure that something like this can't happen in communities again. So I think, yeah, that is a big objective of, of why we're bringing these lawsuits. What is the end result of the lawsuit that would make you feel, Tim, the greatest sense of justice? Is it financial? Is it publicizing what happened to you? What is justice? I mean, it's not really financial. You know, I, I, I'm really not in it for that. I would, I'd want the Boy Scouts to come out and basically admit that people did wrong in their organization. And their organization, I mean, as it is even today, I, I think is a flawed system um, to allow these little independent chapters to have all these boys and just a few men come together and be under them. And even though there's background checks, I mean, anybody can go past a background check. Anybody can sneak through the system. I don't know that anyone can pass a background check, but, but yeah, you think and, that it's... It can be. I mean... I think that what you're saying is that there's a lot of background check might not pick up. Correct. On the other hand, abuse, as we know, is not limited to the Boy Scouts. We've seen this in the Catholic Church. We see this, frankly, in any realm where there is someone with power and a younger person. Is this really a problem that is society-wide, not specific to the Boy Scouts? Are they just a reflection of a sickness that is in society at large? 
I believe it is. These predators are out there. They're everywhere. They're in people's schools. We can see it here in our state today where you have a teacher being accused of doing something with a student. Uh, I don't know if it's a, a way to, to fix it, but hopefully my speaking here today will mean empower somebody if they are abused to come forward. And if we keep on coming forward... These people will be less able to get away with this. Certainly, child abusers are found in youth programs all around the country. But what I would point out with the Boy Scouts in particular is that they knew, going back to the 1930s, that thousands of pedophiles, child molesters, predators, were using their program to access kids, which led them to create a database tracking these predators. And rather than educate the public and educate their membership about this danger, they kept it secret. And what do we know about child molesters and child predators? They thrive in secrecy. These are the so-called perversion files? Correct. Why keep the file if you aren't going to do anything about it? What point did they serve? Have you been able to learn? According to the Boy Scouts, they kept those files so they could track these individuals, these predators, and try to prevent them from joining the Boy Scouts in different Boy Scout troops, different cities, different states. And in some cases, that was effective to keep men out of scouting. In many cases, these men were able to simply change their name, the, the spelling of their name, or frankly, there wasn't great communication between local councils and Boy Scouts National who kept track of this database to make sure that it was a a complete documentation. But some of these men were cast out of the scouts. Correct. Okay. Uh, You just don't think enough, or you just don't think there was enough follow-up afterwards? I I think if I was going to address some of the very specific negligence, recklessness, uh, egregious decision-making and scouting that led to probably thousands and thousands of more abuse survivors today than there should be, Uh, probably has to do with their failure to do simple things like educate their members, talk to the public about this problem, implement policies within their program uh, where you have more than one adult on every scouting event, where you don't allow a scout leader to sleep in the tent with a young scout. So many parents I've spoken to even uh, from back in the 60s and the 70s talk about uh, this danger that we all now know about in terms of child abuse and child molestation And they frankly admit that they didn't even think that was something that was a concern for boys. Hmm. They thought it was only girls who were assaulted. I mean, we've heard that from multiple parents. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And a law passed in New Jersey is proving transformational for those who were abused as Boy Scouts. This law means that there can be legal action for those abused anywhere in the country. Uh, We're hearing about how that is playing out in Colorado. Are you seeking some sort of compensation in this? Yeah. So in any civil lawsuit, uh, whether it's sexual abuse or or other types of civil litigation, eventually when a case goes to trial, a jury is asked to make this plaintiff whole, to restore justice to this person. Is pain and suffering, is that a a term of art? Pain and suffering is is a term that most are familiar with. And and what that really means is you're, you're trying to come up with some value to make this person um, whole for what happened to them. Now, of course, here we're talking about 
traumatic experiences from childhood that can never be undone. Yeah, I mean, the um, idea of putting a price on that is very difficult. It's also true that the Boy Scouts of America has some financial issues. You know, that I, I, I don't know specifically on the Boy Scouts finances, but I've, I know what we've seen in the public reports that they're contemplating bankruptcy. And I know what I'm not seeing in the public reports, and that is any comments by the Boy Scouts denying those accusations or refuting those rumors. That they might be in some financial trouble, you mean? Correct. Mm -hmm. Tim, how does it feel just to be able to sue? It feels like I'm being acknowledged at this point for not being able to talk about this publicly and being able to come to it now um, is a bit empowering. Um, and it also brings more awareness to this. So I think it's it's a good thing. Tim, it sounds like you've made contact with others who have been abused. When I was contacted that he passed away, I saw that they had posted all these accolades on his achievements through the years. Mm, that has to have been very difficult to and read. I, I got actually very angry at that um, and posted a pretty lengthy post about what he did to me over the years that I was told that there were others and from my involvement with Vincent, I've confirm that now, that there were others before me. And if they actually have, had come forward, I may have not have been affected by this. A lot of my friends basically applauded me on, on, on saying that uh, publicly. Some of the older people that used to know Seaback couldn't see that happening and questioned it. And on me being in my late 40s at this point is, I still think about this now. And I don't know how it should, I shouldn't have to. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Thank Great you. to be here. Tim lives in Denver. He preferred only to use his first name. He was sexually abused as a Boy Scout. He and his lawyer, Vincent Napo, plan to sue BSA under a new law in New Jersey. Meanwhile, people victimized by Catholic clergy in Colorado may now file claims with a new reparations fund. The money comes from the church, but will be run independently. Eligible survivors can file claims regardless of how long ago the abuse occurred. The state attorney general says the investigation into abuse in the Catholic Church continues. Yom Kippur begins this evening, the Jewish holiday of atonement, and at one gathering, there will also be Christians and Muslims, not so much to participate, but as a sort of neighborhood watch. CPR's Avery Lill has this story. Several shootings and bombings in places of worship made headlines in the last year. In all, more than 300 people died in the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, in mosques in New Zealand, and in churches in Sri Lanka. After the attack in New Zealand, Denver Rabbi Brian Field of Judaism Your Way participated in a multi-faith vigil. Another clergy, a colleague, a friend of mine, was standing next to me. And he looked to me and said, Brian, you know, we've got to stop meeting like this. After the Tree of Life shooting, Judaism Your Way increased its security at events, as did many synagogues across the country. On the one hand, having a more robust police presence makes perfect sense. On the other hand, it deeply saddened me. The militarization of our sacred gatherings felt like a deep loss. 
Judaism Your Way is trying something new. They will retain private security, but they're also inviting other faiths to be present at their gatherings, and they're reciprocating. As our people would come in, they would actually see, you know, people of different faith traditions welcoming them and just being another set of eyes and ears and hearts. We're not asking people to arm themselves or to come with bulletproof vests. It's more the solidarity. That's Wendy Aronson, Judaism Your Way's executive director. I think people of faith want to feel safe and secure both in that faith and in the physical location they're in. We have private security that are at our events, and so that's not a role we're asking volunteers to step into. It's really that sacred witnessing. People can speak up and say, this didn't feel right. Can you please get one of your security officers to take a look at this situation is really helpful. Muslim and Christian volunteers will attend Yom Kippur this week at Judaism Your Way. They'll greet people and hand out prayer books. And Aronson and Fields say that their presence helps make Jewish worshipers feel more safe. Aronson volunteered at the Mosaic Foundation in Aurora's Eid al-Fitr celebration earlier this summer and helped prepare food for the Muslim community to break their fast. We set up some tables, we poured tea, we cleared dishes, just to make it easier for the Muslim community to really be present and just focus on themselves and, you know, who was there with them. I know from my experience fasting that when you break a fast, at least for me, I'm pretty just emotionally drained and exhausted. So I'm hopeful that for us to fill in those little roles, it meant that they could relax a little bit more and and just further appreciate the end of the holiday. Right now, a handful of Muslim, Christian, and Jewish communities are part of this multi-faith initiative. Field and Aronson hope that it will grow. There's more that we all have in common as people of faith than we don't have in common. And the more opportunities we have to break bread together, to share stories together, to talk about our families together, I think that's a huge part of healing the world. My colleague Avery Lill speaking with Rabbi Brian Field and Wendy Aronson. She's executive director of Judaism Your Way. Now in our feedback segment, Loud and Clear, the Sound of Silence. We told you that the great sand dunes in southern Colorado may become the country's first quiet park. The story made Albert Betancourt of Madison, Wisconsin, think of his visit to the dunes earlier this year with his wife. At first, they dealt with some fierce winds. We had a bandanas over our faces, like to protect from the pelting sand. It was so strong that you could hear the sand banging against our equipment, our bags, our bottles. And then all that ceased, like right as it was getting close to sunset, and it was completely silent. Never heard anything so quiet before. And after we had finished setting up our campsite at the top of one of the dunes, we were just sitting there, just in silence, enjoying it. And we saw in the distance this little bird. I don't know what kind of bird it was, but it, it was coming towards us, and I could hear the air underneath of its wings. And I was just amazed at that because I had never been in an environment that was so quiet. That story amazes me too. The sound of wind under a bird's wings. Albert Betancourt of Madison, Wisconsin. And I'd love to hear your story of silence. What's the quietest it's ever been outside in Colorado for you? Tweet me at CPR Warner or email news at CPR.org. And the program continues in the next half hour. This is CPR News.
When Colorado legalized recreational weed all the way back in 2012, not a single line of that amendment that eventually became part of our Constitution dealt with the negative impacts of the war on drugs. But states that are looking to legalize today are thinking about those things. The big question is, will it work? Find out on the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR News. Subscribe for free wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Some women who seek fertility treatment are told they're too fat to proceed. We're going to hear from just such a woman shortly. Her name's Hope White. The doctor she eventually turned to for help is Dr. Paul Magarelli of Colorado Springs. He told my colleague Andrea Dukakis that there are more challenges for women with high BMIs who want to get pregnant. But unfortunately, the magnitude of that barrier has been misspoken, and, and unfortunately, there's a huge bias in it. There's only a 7% difference in reproductive outcomes with women of average BMI, 25, and what they consider obese over 30, 7%. And if you compare that to a smoker, which is a 40% difference, you kind of wonder why are we picking on just weight as an issue. And how common is it for larger women to be denied fertility care? You probably don't have numbers, but um, how often do you hear about it? Uh, honestly, quite a bit. I, I'm not disparaging anyone, but the impression is it's for the betterment of the patient per se. But there are many other reasons that people don't want to treat patients who have high BMIs. Tell me about those. Well, um, if you choose your patients based on their opportunity for success, then it makes sense that you're going to marginalize people who have a low outcome versus take care of all the people who come to you for care, which for me is what the Hippocratic Oath says. And so outcome measurements have unfortunately created a strong bias against caring for women who have a higher chance of having either no pregnancy or a miscarriage. So when someone comes into your office who has a high BMI, because women who have larger BMIs are more prone to diabetes, high blood pressure. Do you think it's important to talk about some of the barriers when they come in? Yes, I do. I do think that understanding risks and benefits of any medical procedure, there are risks and benefits of getting pregnant. Uh, You know, there's many good benefits, but there are risks associated with it. My job as a uh, as a physician is to give people information to make good decisions. For my discussion, a healthy body is a fertile body, you know, but the definition of healthy includes alcohol, tobacco, drugs, driving under the influence, speeding, child and spousal abuse, exposure to toxins. There's a million different things. And those are things <laughs> you can't see necessarily from the outside. And that is the pivotal point that allows me to make my patients feel assured that they're human beings and I'm here to help them create a family and there is nothing better than that. Do I want everyone to have an easy pregnancy without hypertension, gestational diabetes, preeclampsia? Of course I do. But unfortunately, humans are humans and we have variability. And I think it's an injustice to use a single factor as a judgment as to whether you can become a parent. That is criminal in my mind. 
wouldn't telling them to lose some weight ensure that they have a better chance at pregnancy? I wish that were true. It turns out that if we look at the average age for a woman doing IVF, it's somewhere between 32 and 36 years of age. So I'm going to use 35. If a woman is asked to lose weight and told to come back in six months, she has a significantly lower chance of ever having a baby. If you tell her to come back to a number, let's say lose 40 pounds, which should occur in about two years, that's a good weight loss rate, their chances are curtailed for getting a baby. So age trumps weight. Hope White, let's bring you in here. The New York Times recently ran an article about larger women seeking fertility treatment and being turned away by doctors. It mentions some doctors who actually have cutoffs. If a woman's BMI exceeds a certain amount, they won't treat them. You're 31 years old. You're now Dr. Magarelli's patient. But I understand you had similar experiences when you first sought help to have a child. So, yes, that is correct. So this process for my husband and I began, I would say, almost 10 years ago. Um, we have always wanted children, whatnot. So we went to the OB. Hey, we're trying. You know, it's been a year. So she then recommended us to go to see some specialists. She did tell me up front that some of these specialists were judgmental, basically, were her words that, you know, they may not see you because of your weight. And at that point, I just, I felt defeated. I felt heartbroken. So my husband and I, we thought about it and we're just like, well, let's just go see. So we were filling out the paperwork and right there on the paperwork, it said, if you have a BMI higher than 30, we will not see you. So at that point, I just, him and I were just like, you know what, let's just relax. You know, let's walk, let's exercise, everything like that. It is what it is. My body just doesn't like to lose weight. So we just took a break. We tried to do things on our own naturally. Never did happen. So and then that's when my primary care referred me to Dr. Magarelli. The moment that I talked to Dr. Magarelli, I just felt like he was on my side. And we should say you're still trying to get pregnant. Correct. <laughs> Were you surprised by the doctor's reluctance to help you? The previous doctors? Yes. yes. Because medicine is always changing. Being in the medical field, we see that every day. You're in the medical field. Yes. Um, I'm an x-ray tech, so and I work with um, pain management doctors. So we see everybody's different. Everybody has separate issues. Just like me, just like you, Dr. Magarelli. You know, they come in, I expect to be treated for this symptom. I don't expect to be judged by the way that I look, talk, anything like that. And that's what I felt like. I was judged by who I was on the outside, not who I was on the inside. Do you think that's a symptom of a greater issue in terms of folks with higher BMIs in society? Yeah. I mean, every day, every day, women with higher BMIs are getting judged, whether we're going into grocery stores, we're going into clothing stores, whether we're just going to see our primary care doctor. And that's what I have experienced my whole life. Did Dr. Magarelli suggest you try to lose weight? No, not at all. From our very first phone call, I was up front with him. You know, I'm overweight, considered high BMI, and I will never forget this. He's like, do you have eggs? Do you have sperm? Do you have a uterus and tubes? I'm like, that I know of, yes. He's like, then we're going to make a baby. So, And that has just stuck with me from day one. I mean, through this whole process, he's never mentioned, hey, maybe you should do this or do that. He has treated me just like anybody else, anybody that's 
healthy, young, has a great BMI, to the next person who's just like me. Dr. Magarelli, I understand that you may have more empathy because you've struggled at times with weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I always went to the husky sec- section <laughs> growing up as a kid, and uh, God, I hated that. <laughs> when, when you, when, you know, because I felt that I was marginalized, and um, I was Italian and fairly a robust young man. But in my culture, that was a good thing. You know, the chubbier you are, the you know, the healthy, the more cherub-like, right. you know, like angels, and so. It's been a challenge for me to still feel self-worth when people will judge you by the size of the pants you wear or whether or not you can do a certain thing based on your weight. To me, your job as a physician is access to the highest quality care for everybody and trust that they're adults and therefore can make decisions. Hope, what do you think about when you think about being pregnant and having a child? I picture it. I picture that child playing with our dogs, us taking it to the mountains. And it's just, it brings tears to my eyes because it is something that we have wanted for so long. And it just seems like it's so close in reach, but then so far away that it's going to be a blessing. Don't get me wrong. There have been times that I'm like, what are we doing? (laughs) Um, But I'm very excited for what our future holds. Dr. Magarelli, this seems in some ways like a civil rights issue for you. It is. It's the rights of humans. Nature wants you to propagate. Of anything, that's what nature wants. So for me, the ability to give them hope, to provide them options... Be realistic. I'm, I'm a realist. I'm a scientist at heart. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not only a Mr. Feelgood here, but I want them to trust that nature wants them pregnant. That is the challenge of all medicine: is to get people back to the state of harmony, which is in keeping with who they are. Thirty-one-year-old beautiful woman wanting a child with her husband. Man, there's nothing better than that. Dr. Magarelli, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. And hope good luck to you. Thank you so much. My colleague Andrea Dukakis speaking with Dr. Paul Magarelli of the Magarelli Fertility Clinic in Colorado Springs about the bias some women face because of their weight. Hope White was told she was too overweight to have a baby, and so she sought treatment from Dr. Magarelli. As we brace for a big change in the weather this week, Colorado has a new all-time record high temperature, 115 degrees, recorded in July near Los Animas in southeastern Colorado. It beats out the state's old record by a degree. A climate extremes committee has been working to confirm the measurement. So what does it take to make a new state record official, and why does it take so long? Here is CPR climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis. In a lab on the Colorado State University campus, an oven is warming up. It's set to reach 46.1 degrees Celsius, or 115 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Russ Schumacher is the state climatologist. He's patiently waiting for the oven to get hot. We haven't used this particular oven before, so we'll see how long it takes to kind of get to a reasonable temperature here. Schumacher is part of the state's Climate Extremes Committee. It convenes when there's a challenge to a state record, like the hottest temperature ever recorded. The committee then goes through a rigorous process to vet the challenge before it's declared a new state record. Because Schumacher says these kinds of records get a lot of scrutiny. Partly just because they're of interest to the public and to the weather and climate community. And so that's why we go through this whole process of trying to really be careful of confirming that they're correct. Part of that process is making sure everything was working right. Schumacher is at the CSU lab to test the device that measured the new record temperature on July 19th at John Martin Reservoir. The instrument is called a thermograph, and this is a vintage one installed in the 1980s. It's a metal box like the shape of a bread loaf pan. Noah Newman is a research coordinator at the Colorado Climate Center. He opens it up and explains how it works. The temperature itself is recorded on a sheet of paper that spins on a drum. We wind it just like a clock, and it takes the drum one week to spin all the way around. So at the very end, we have a data sheet with seven days of of data. That ticking is the sound of the drum spinning. They have to test this device in an oven set to exactly 115 degrees because this old machine wasn't prepared for such a hot day. The highest temperature marked on the graph paper is 110 degrees. It's sort of a strange thing that it's literally off the charts, and we need to make sure that when it blows through the top like that, that that it's still recording the right numbers. The observer, who initially recorded the new record temperature, had to do some measurements by hand to mark what 115 degrees would be. So Schumacher has to as well. There's more paper there, so 115 will be, we'll get out the ruler, but somewhere around that little red line on there. So, with the oven hot, the thermograph is put inside. And now we wait. This state climate extreme committee includes representatives from the Colorado Climate Center, the National Weather Service in Pueblo, and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It convened after the 115-degree reading was brought to Becky Bollinger's attention in an unusual way. She's the assistant state climatologist. I was just scrolling through my Twitter feed, and another... um, climatologist, meteorologist posted a map that said, here were the highest temperatures recorded in every state for the month of July. Bollinger knew the old record of 114 degrees, set in 1933 in Los Animas, not far from where the new record was taken. He found a 115, and I immediately messaged him, what station was this? Bollinger says her office would have eventually spotted the high number, but the Twitterverse got to it first. At first I thought, oh, it must be a mistake, so (laughs) it was exciting to find out. No, it wasn't. This isn't the only new climate extreme that the state is investigating. In the last six months, they've challenged two other Colorado records, the largest hailstone and the lowest atmospheric pressure from the bomb cyclone snowstorm back in March. It has been a wild weather year for Colorado. This series of record-breaking isn't normal. The last time the state investigated a climate extreme was the rain in 2013 that resulted in major floods. Before that, it was 1985, the lowest temperature ever recorded of negative 61 degrees Fahrenheit below zero in the town of Maybell in the northwest corner of the state. Of the latest three extremes, Bollinger says this new record high temperature was the hardest one to verify. We need to make sure that it's a very robust record, meaning that it's not out in the direct sun. 
It's not over an area that gets artificially hot like a, a black top surface. The lead meteorologist at Pueblo's National Weather Service is Jennifer Stark. Her office oversees the John Martin Reservoir observation location where the new high temperature was recorded. She says they try to make site visits every year to make sure the environment stays the same. You know, maybe they built a shed or a garage that might influence the temperature sensor or the rainfall catch. And so we might need to move equipment if needed. Stark says everything checked out during the committee's investigation. The observers at this location are a group from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers who've been collecting data from the site for more than 80 years. And when the 115-degree temperature was recorded, the observer had two other employees double-check the measurement since it was off the chart. Stark says it was unrelated, but the thermograph was actually replaced with digital equipment just a week after the high temperature was collected. Hopefully it simplifies their observing process so they don't have to manually read the thermograph. It's all electronic. Back at the CSU lab, the thermograph has finished heating up in the oven. Noah Newman, the research coordinator with the Colorado Climate Center, checks it out. The ink has gone over the 110 mark. So we've definitely confirmed that this thermograph has the ability to perform above 110 degrees, which certainly helps us verify this record. And eventually, it hit 115 degrees. Russ Schumacher, the state climatologist, agrees that the test is a success. That's when I ask him if he thinks this new high temperature can be connected to climate change. Schumacher says it's hard to say if this one single event is related. But in the big picture, we're seeing a lot more of these high temperature records being set and certainly a lot more of the high temperature records than the low temperature records. And I think that's pretty clearly a a signal of climate change. It's a trend likely to continue as global carbon dioxide emissions are on the rise. It's also likely that this committee that's so rarely been called on in the past may work together more in the future. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis. CPR News. And the report from the Climate Extremes Committee is expected this week. Smoke from the Decker fire has been choking people in and around Salida and triggering air quality advisories. Understanding how smoke behaves and its effect on our health was the mission this summer of Boulder researcher Karsten Warnicke. His team spent the summer flying into wildfire smoke. We spoke in July as he was heading out. Karsten, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Most people flee wildfires, but I understand your team will fly quite close to gather air samples. What is it like to fly into smoke? I think we've all seen those pictures of wildfires raging. What we're going to do is we fly into the smoke. So we actually fly downwind of those fires and through the smoke where you probably won't be able to see through. But we are going to analyze what's in the smoke and what's happening to it once it's emitted and transported downwind. You're not just attacking this from the air. Uh, This project includes a lot of sophisticated technology that's also on the ground. Help us understand all the ways you'll be measuring smoke. Yeah, we have a lot of assets in in the field this summer. We start with uh, four different aircraft. One is a high-flying aircraft that simulates satellites. Then we have the NASA DC-8 aircraft, which is the largest flying laboratory in the world. Then we have two smaller NOAA Twin Otter aircraft that uh, will be flying at night as well. In addition, we have also assets on the ground. We have mobile laboratories that will measure the smoke in valleys in the western U.S. and sometimes in urban areas where the smoke is going to. 
We'll also have drones and uh, we'll have a lot of uh, modelers and forecasters helping us out. You and other scientists will be based out of Boise, uh, but presumably with any number of wildfires raging across the West at a given time, how are you going to choose which ones to fly to? We'll have uh, several criteria for looking at the fires. The first one is how large is the fire and is the smoke plume transported high up so that we can easily fly it with our aircraft. The other one will be, is the fire being fought? If there's activity in the area with lots of other planes, we try to stay away from that. We, we certainly do not want to get in the way of firefighting activities. Makes sense. You know, it's remarkable about wildfire smoke are the distances. I remember when there were fires burning across the West, even if they weren't immediately in Denver. My goodness, you could still see the smoke here. Yes, you can see the smoke miles, thousands of miles away sometimes. For example, earlier this year, there were fires burning in Alberta, Canada, and the smoke plume was transported along the East Coast, even to New York and Philadelphia, Baltimore. You could see the smoke and it was so intense that you could even smell it at these long distances. And you're trying to figure out more about what's in that smoke that can travel so far and be so visible. Yes. So what we will do is we will measure all the ingredients of smoke. We have very modern, new equipment, the best basically you can get in terms of measurements of the composition of the smoke, and then also how the smoke is transformed while it's moving downwind. We all hear about ozone as harmful gas, for example, and ozone is produced while the smoke plume is traveling downwind. And we want to understand what are the emissions that causes this ozone production that is harmful to people. And in addition, particles are also very harmful. Yeah, so the idea here is that there is a kind of dual threat. One is the creation of ozone. We're really familiar with that along the front range, of course, uh, because of the soup that's created by emissions from cars and oil and gas. That's one issue. And then you're saying the actual particulate, these fine pieces that are floating in the air present their own health risks. Yes, when I think of, of what burns in a fire, I think of trees, of course, but mm-hmm. I, I also think of homes, and that means furniture and insulation, and, and I gather that's reflected in everything you're seeing in wildfire smoke. Yes, that's correct. So there have been basically no data so far on what smoke looks like from these type of buildings in the larger ambient atmosphere. So we, of course, want to be a little cognizant about this. We're trying to improve models and forecasts for the people, but we also want to make sure that people are not offended by us measuring these burning homes or their livelihood, their homes. Hmm. And hopefully we can convince people with our science that we're doing that this is really very valuable for everybody. What do you think public health officials could glean from what you'll learn this summer? So what we will be able to do is after this campaign, we will be able to improve the forecast models. And the forecast models is what health officials are often using to warn people to change their habits for the next day. For example, if you have a forecast that says there's a lot of smoke in the area this coming weekend, you might want to think of not having your uh, baseball match outside. So health officials really need to know this information that we're providing and really improve the forecasting models that they are using. Okay, so you're flying into fires in the West based out of Boise for the first part of this wildfire research. You move from Boise to Salina, Kansas to study Mm -hmm. a different kind of smoke, and it's a smoke from agricultural fires. What is an ag fire and how are these different? Ag fires are used to manage land. And 
there is a trend in the U.S. to really use uh, prescribed fires to manage forests, uh, even in the West as well. But most practices are done in the East. Mm -hmm. These are often the agricultural fires are fields being cleared by the farmers and the leftover stubble gets burned to clear the field for use again. So one thing that people don't realize that the land area that's burned from prescribed and agricultural fires is actually much, much larger than the area that's burned by wildfires. The total emissions from wildfires is still larger because there's a lot more uh, vegetation and material burned in the wildfires because they are much more intense. But the area is really dominated by the prescribed fires. And is it that the health effects of those are mysterious as well? They are quite mysterious for several reasons. These small fires are really hard to detect. Usually we use satellites to detect fires, but the small fires are sometimes too small to be detected and often are uh, masked by clouds that the satellites don't even see them at all. And the smoke impact from those can be much larger than we estimate currently. It makes me wonder what your relationship is to fire. Like, obviously wildfires are a part of the natural ecosystem. They're also destructive. Um, How do you view fire? My origins are actually from measurement of urban air quality. And we have done so good in urban air quality improvements over the past decades that the only areas where the air quality is actually not improving is in fire-prone areas where you have smoke from wildfires. This is what brought me on the air quality side. And now over the past few years, I've learned how important fires are for the ecosystem. We need fires and we need more fires than we have. We have been fighting fires now for decades and the fuels that have been built up because of that are really intense. And it is estimated that until the mid of this century, we will have to live with fires and more fires. So this campaign and my work here is really preparing us and being able to predict those fires properly over the, over the next decades to come. Karsten, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Boulder researcher Karsten Warnicke, who studies wildfire smoke. We talked in July and will share any results once he has them. And that's Colorado Matters for today. From Studio 2A in Centennial, I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.